Let's take our Bibles. Let's head over to Mark. Gospel of Mark, and would join me at the end of chapter 10. Gospel of Mark, the end of chapter 10, please. When we were first saved back in Minnesota, there was uh, one gal, I don't remember her name even, uh, since that was so many years ago. But I remember meeting this woman at church that she was an extremely kind, gracious woman, but she, her, her eyes wouldn't, wouldn't look at you. And so the first time I met her, I wasn't sure where she was looking. And then I found out through conversation from others that she was basically blind. And uh, therefore, when I learned after a few weeks that when you walked up to her, you would have to say who you were. And then she would engage conversation. She had a tremendous memory, even though she had that that disability and she was uh, up in years, she had a tremendous mind. But what really impressed me is how much insight she had, despite the fact she couldn't see, is oftentimes you'd walk up and you'd say, hi, it's Wayne, you know, how are you, Uh, Miss Mary? And she'd say, you know, I'm doing well, thank you for asking. And she says, you sound like you've had a really good day. Tell me a blessing that you've had, just by the tone of voice. Or she'd say, you sound like you're really burdened. I didn't think I sounded like I was burdened, but it had been a bad day. She had this tremendous, canny insight to be able to read people's voices. And I was reading through in Mark chapter 10 about people there who uh, are blind individuals and how much insight they really have. How they can, they they get it a whole lot better than even those close to Jesus get it. Look at the story. Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 46. They come to Jericho, and as as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calls you. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do to you? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Interesting story. You've all known it. You, you could probably teach us better than I can teach us. So, but, so let me just refresh all of our minds. This is one of the few stories that's in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is one that... Um, that is the last recorded miracle of healing that Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark. As we already read, it happens at a time where Jesus has, yeah, has just announced for the third time that he is going to Jerusalem to die. And now he's in that trip, and they're coming to Jericho. Jericho is the oldest continuously occupied city of that ancient world at that time. And as they come, they're about 18 to 19 miles away from Jerusalem, We'll explain why there's a discrepancy there. But they come to this town of Jericho, and the next big town is going to be Jerusalem. There's lots of people in the highway. If this is in the last few weeks, week, month of Jesus' life, that means it's pilgrimage time. So there's many people on the road headed down for the Passover season. As you recall, some of those from Galilee would come earlier than others because they would even celebrate Passover.
over a few days ahead of the others. And so the crowd, the, the highways and the toll roads are getting filled with people. And those people are going because of a spiritual interest to fulfill their responsibilities. But they've also been hearing about this Jesus. So as they're traveling and Jesus is in the region, they're going to gather and they're going to travel some of that main road with Jesus, which explains why there's so many people that are around him, that are with him at that moment. And as they go on, Jesus comes down and he's going to minister to Bartimaeus. Now, in the story here, it's recorded in this text. It's also recorded in Matthew and it's also recorded in Luke. When you compare the three accounts, there are a couple discrepancies. There's a couple differences. Differences that make critics question whether this is a true story. For instance, um, Matthew and Mark both agree with this statement. They came to Jericho and as he went out of Jericho. Luke says, as he went into Jericho. Um, In Matthew's account, Matthew has two blind men. Mark and Luke only mention one blind man. Mark is the only one that mentions anybody by name. In fact, of all the healings, this is the only time that a name is given to the person who's healed that we know of in the, in the Gospel of Mark. So this one really stick, uh, stuck out to Mark, and there's a reason for that, uh, as we'll mention later on in tradition, that apparently, apparently Bartimaeus was known to a number of the readers. And uh, so he talks about that man and identifies him, who ha- apparently by tradition becomes an important figure in early church history. But they, as they're going and reading these accounts, there's uh, people who will say, okay, this once again proves the Bible has mistakes. Uh, let me throw this out to you. How would you answer somebody who would say, well, Mark says there was just this one fella, or says there's one blind man. Matthew says there's two. How do you, how do you put that together? Is that a contradiction? Does it have to be considered a contradiction? Let me put it that way. Let me, let me do it this way. I want to tell a story, and I want to tell a story about something that happened at church. And in telling the story, I say Leon was sitting in the fourth row. And while he was sitting in the fourth row, all of a sudden something happened to Leon. And Leon, all of a sudden, I'm going to make this really bad, he collapsed and he passed out. And, then, and in my story, I make it sound like Leon was the only one in the service. Is that a contradiction to the reality? Not really, because I'm telling a story that's focusing on him, and I'm just a, I don't have to mention the others. That, that to me isn't a problem. The bigger problem is, how come one says they're going into the city, and the other two say they're going out of the city? What's that? It was a small, it was, oh no. <laughs> yeah, either, either going in and out was about the same thing. Actually, you're close to that. In, in that time of, the, of this era, there was two Jerichos that were real close to each other that weren't separated. One was considered the ancient Jericho, and almost next door was the modern Jericho where Herod had built his palace. And so when we talk about the discrepancy in mileage, they're within a quarter mile, if I understand right, of each other. So could he be coming out of the one and going into the other or vice versa? 
It's no problem. They both kept that same name, and so oftentimes in writings they have to, they would have to identify which Jericho they're talking about. So it's it's no real contradiction if you know that background and if which you people do. If you do a little bit of study, you say it's not a really complication. It's not a contradiction. But what's interesting is as you go through the story is just, it it unfolds, you can just picture it happening. He's traveling, the 12, there's lots of crowds, there's lots of hub, and all of a sudden somebody over there, somebody is yelling, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowds, shh, shh, be quiet, hush, because maybe Jesus is talking, because maybe they, they don't want to be embarrassed that you're making this scene. And the crowd keeps telling him, be quiet. And instead of being quiet, he and his friend, all of a sudden they, the passage said, they get louder. And now they're yelling it louder and louder. And then we read the passage where, it, and again, you, I find this really interesting, where it says in verse 49, and Jesus stood still. Does anybody have a footnote from a previous message about something that would help clarify stood still? Anybody have anything there in your Bible? The word literally means he stopped. Okay, it's more of a, it's a, the active idea that Jesus he, just, he came to a complete standstill. And he totally stopped. And then we, uh, we read what happens here. Every story in the Bible, everything is supposed to point to Christ. Too many times we want to say, okay, what does this tell me about me? And that's okay to learn about ourselves and to get insight. But more importantly is, what does it teach us about Jesus? What does this entire story teach us about Jesus? If I look at it and say, oh, yeah, I could, I could conclude this. Jesus is powerful. True, that just kind of comes off. It's a truism. It comes off the page. But if I really want to see it even a little bit deeper and meditate on a little bit more, is there something really, really, really more in this text about Jesus than just his ability and power? I think there is. In context of what he has just been teaching and what's been going on, I think there's three profound revelations of Jesus. One is this. Though he was extremely busy, and he was, he's traveling, he's teaching, there's lots of people, there's crowds going on. Even though he was extremely busy, he cared enough to stop and to help others in need. To me, that is profound. Okay, it's not surprising because of the Jesus that we're studying, but Jesus practiced what one author put down, the lost art of stopping for others. The lost art of stopping for others. Think with me what it, what it means. Jesus was not so preoccupied with his own duties, his own responsibilities to God, duties in service to to the Lord Jesus Christ that he overlooked the needs of others. He was not so preoccupied with his duties to God that he would overlook the needs of others. Uh, Let's expand that. He was not so preoccupied with reaching many that he overlooked the needs of a few. Those are profound. Let me see if I can explain it and illustrate it with a negative story. On Thursday, October 20th, 2011, a little two-year-old girl named Yu Yu was struck by a van in a hit-and-run accident in China. Then at least 18 people passed by, some going out of their way to avoid the little girl. She was then struck by a second van that also did not stop. She was finally helped by a trash collector. It was tragically too late. She was declared brain dead at the local hospital and declared dead early the next day. The whole incident was caught on video, shocking the moral sensibilities of the world and bringing shame to the proud Chinese nation. One of the passerbys passerbys later said, It wasn't my child. Why should I have bothered? Journalists, and it gives the name that I can't pronounce, would shout at her own people in an article entitled, Shame on Us Chinese. 
the leader of the Tiananmen Square student protest wrote an article that was entitled The Heart for Freedom and went on with the story explaining how it shows the brazenness, the callousness of the Chinese people. You use untimely and inhumane death was ca- has caused an ever greater stir in regards to the value of little girls in Chinese society and the responsibility of families and society to care for them than any other video in all of history. And this is happening in a country that appears to care less about girls than boys. China has 37 million more men than women and is eliminating girls through the prenatal sex selection, infanticide, and abandonment after birth. If one video of a small toddler on a side street in China can cause millions of people around the world to stop and rethink their own morals and spur others to craft legislation that may save lives in the future, what sort of change is possible if we can capture the larger scale mass killing of girls on video? What if there were videos of women crying, being dragged into abortion centers while others looked on? What if there were videos of Chinese girls being born and immediately drowned or strangled because they're not boys, while others witnessed the crime? And what if there were videos of a family leaving a newborn daughter in a box outside the city because they have only one child and they don't want it to be a girl? Would this cause a similar commotion and stir a comparable amount of action? She goes on in her, in her article. But all this requires each one of us to ask this simple question. Would I have cared enough to take the time to stop and help little you you? Well, let's rephrase that. What about the people that God puts in your lives who may be sick? What about the people God puts in your life who may be discouraged? What about the fellow students who are suffering from some loneliness? What about you reaching out to somebody else? We were last week in Grief Share. We were talking and there was one gal in the video was sharing how she had a really good friend in her class had a death in the family. And she said she, she thought to herself that morning, she hopes she doesn't run into that friend because she won't know what to say. And now that she lost her own husband, she looks back and says, how could I have been so calloused that I didn't even want to run into somebody with a loss? The story that Jesus gives here is really, really challenging in the fact that you and I look at it and say, Jesus had that fine art of stopping and hearing a voice in need when surrounded by a multitude of people. We joke about how if there's a coin that that goes to the sidewalk, how all of a sudden all the ears hear that, that little sound of a coin, probably because we're so in tune to possessions and money. But what about the cry of some widow who is saying, I'm really lonely. What about the cry of some youngster who says, I don't have a father and I would like one or we need a mother in this family? What about the cry of some individual who is saying that they come to church but they are totally, totally feeling isolated and lonely? Do you have the mind and the heart? Do I have the hearing of Jesus that we hear the cries of others around us and that we would stop and not, not get so caught up with the duty of worship, the duty of church, the duty of work, the duty of family, or would we take the time to minister to somebody like a blind Bartimaeus? Jesus did. In fact, Jesus was not so preoccupied with those who are normal that he would overlook those who had an abnormality. Jesus was sensitive to that. What strikes me more than anything about this whole fact that Jesus 
was busy and yet he cared enough to stop is this fact. Jesus practiced what he preached. If you go back a couple chapters with me to chapter 9 and you look at verse 37, you recall that Jesus said to his disciples, Whosoever receives one of such children in my name receives me. The little child that he pulled on his lap was somebody that was insignificant in society. Somebody that was often overlooked. Jesus made that same comment in chapter 10. Just moments before the story continues in Mark. But in chapter 10 verse 43, 44 where he made the comment that whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. Whosoever you will be chief shall be servant of all. Jesus preached that you need to receive little ones or look out for those who are insignificant. Jesus preached that we need to serve all. And he practiced that when he stops and takes time for Bartimaeus and his friend. People that others were trying to keep away, keep quiet, but Jesus said, come, come here, let me minister to you. Challenge is very, very clear, even though you are busy, even though I'm busy, do we take the time to hear those who have needs or are we so busy that we just don't have time in the service of mankind to actually help one individual. Number two about Jesus. The second thing that stands out. Though Jesus knew all, he waited to hear their prayers. Though Jesus knew all, he waited to hear their prayers. I am, I am stymied by this, this um, development in the story. Jesus calls the two men. The crowd stopped shushing them, and the crowd said, Oh, he's calling you now. Hurry, hurry. Bartimaeus throws off his outer cloak so as to get to Jesus quicker. Obviously, apparently, people in that crowd would have helped him to get close to them. But when he comes up to Jesus, Jesus who is seeing a blind man, Jesus who knows the heart, Jesus who knows the condition of every person, Jesus, it says in verse 51, he asks him, what will thou that I should do unto you? Is that because Jesus is that dense at that moment? He's that human that he can't see that this man is blind? Not at all. Why is Jesus asking? Oh, by the way, it's the exact same question word for word in the original, that he asked James and John just the chapter before where he said, when the mother said, we have a request, what is it that you would have to do for me? And they respond by saying, give us some extraordinary, uh, extraordinary recognition. This man just asks for this. He wants to be normal. He wants to be like you. He basically responds and says, I want to be able to see like everybody else can see. I just want a normal lifestyle. But it struck me as I was thinking about this more and more, why did Jesus even ask this man, what do you want? What was Jesus' purpose in that? Jesus obviously wanted that man to do this one thing, or the, both those men. He wanted them to express their need and their desires to him. He knew it, but he wanted them to express it. Doesn't that kind of answer the question, if God knows all my needs... Before I even ask, then why do I have to ask? Because faith is expressing and asking, please, Lord, do this for me. It's an utterance of dependence. It's an utterance of, of a request and a desire. Otherwise, if we make no requests, we're just assuming that God owes it to me. And that's not right. If you look at the expression of faith that this, this man, these men make, it's amazing, it's profound. These guys, they, they recognize in their faith, in their insight, 
They recognize their own inabilities. They call to Jesus as he's walking on the road. Thou son of David, have mercy on us. They know that they themselves cannot solve their problems. First step of faith, is it not? Recognizing you have a need. Well, they know they have a need. Their humility in their expression. Have mercy upon us clearly says that they understand Jesus doesn't owe them this. This isn't something that they merited. This isn't something that has to be done for them. Have mercy means to do something that isn't necessarily, you know, has to be done for me. And so they're expressing that idea of humility. But by them calling out really loudly, they're saying to Jesus, we believe in you. And it's interesting the titles that they give Jesus. There's a couple of them that show up here in this text. You see that they make the, make the comment twice in verse 47 and 48. They call Jesus, thou son of David. Now prior to this century of Jesus' time, that was a title that the Jews knew, but they didn't use frequently. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God is speaking to David, and God is saying to David that your son shall come upon the throne, and I will establish his kingdom forever. It's the Davidic covenant. It's that statement that God is saying, David, your son, not just Solomon, but your son in generations to come is going to have the Jewish throne and he's going to live on it. And so that term, son of David, within about a hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene, became a very popular, common uh, title used for the Messiah. Prior to that, it wasn't in much Jewish writings. But by the time Jesus comes on the scene, this is a very common messianic title. There's a second title that they use. The only other time it shows up is in John chapter 20, and he uses it when Bartimaeus speaks to Jesus. uh, Down in verse 51, the blind man said unto him, Lord... This is the only, the, the, uh, like I said, the only time in Mark, the second time in all the Gospels, that the word rabbinai is used of Jesus. In Jewish writing at that time, we think automatically it sounds like rabbi, so it was used frequently. It really wasn't. In Jewish writing at that time, the rabbinai was used in prayer to God. It was a term that was used to speak to the Lord God Almighty that the Jews would use. They wouldn't use Yahweh, they wouldn't use Jehovah, but they would use this term. So here he is, Bartimaeus is calling out, Thou son of David, a messianic title. And then when he's speaking to Jesus directly, he uses a title that was very common in prayer to God. And then he asks, he says, can you do something? Can you restore my sight? Do you remember what Jesus has already explained in his ministry about two years, two and a half years earlier? Go back to Luke chapter uh, chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Jesus is preaching in this area. As, uh, as he began his ministry in Luke chapter 4, when he goes to his hometown of Nazareth, he preaches to them from Isaiah 61. And so when he is quoting the text in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, okay, here's what I'm all about. In Luke, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives. And what else? Recovering of what? Sight to the blind was part of the ministry of Messiah. So when these men are coming and they're saying, Jesus, have mercy on us, give us sight, there's a tremendous amount of expression of faith. 
they are saying, we don't deserve this. You know, this is a merciful deed. But do what you promised to do because we believe you're God. We believe you're Messiah. We believe that you have come and one of your ministries is to heal those people who are like us. These men are expressing a tremendous amount of faith. And so when they pray that prayer, which was reasonable, they pray that prayer to Jesus, which is biblical. It matches all the scripture. They pray that prayer to Jesus in faith. All of a sudden, once they express it, what does Jesus say? Go thy way, thy what? Thy faith. Thy faith hath made you whole. Again, I'm bringing you back to this thought. I think this text illustrates a biblical truth. Though Jesus knows all things, he waits to hear the prayers of those who are trusting in him. What a lesson for us. That prayer is essential. Prayer is vital. Even though he knows what I need, even though he knows what I, what I desire, I still need to express to him my desire in faith. I'll give you a third thought that stands out in this text. Jesus deserved their gratitude. Even though he deserved that gratitude, he did not force them to be grateful. Even though he deserved their gratitude, he did not force them to be grateful. Interesting what happens and what he says in verse 52. Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Uh, the other texts say that he touched them and then they were healed as he spoke to them and touched them. Either way, there's an interesting thought here that goes along with what Jesus says, the red letter part, you may want to mark this. Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Does anybody have the word whole marked from previous Bible studies? It's the word sozo. In the Greek language, it means your faith has saved you. It has saved you. Okay? Uh, so is there the implication of physical healing? Yeah. But there's also the implication of what? Yeah. Spiritual healing. Okay. That Jesus used it in a very broad sense. And so the, their man, it's because of their faith, the Lord does the work. And the healing, as we read, the physical healing was how long? How, how many minutes went past? What's your Bible read? immediately, immediately they were restored. You think about this. You are that man with Bartimaeus. You've been blind. Nobody knows how long it's been happening. If you were blind for a week and you were healed, wouldn't it be an exciting moment? If you were blind for a year and you were healed, wouldn't it be an exciting moment? If you were blind for 10 years and you were healed, wouldn't it be an exciting moment? We read that their response in Matthew records the response of the two men and it records the response of the crowd. It says that immediately they were healed and they, guess what they do? They, they, they don't follow. First thing, they will. But the first thing they do is they glorify God. And the crowd that saw it, they glorify God. Well, that makes perfect sense. Gospel gratitude, Right? If all of a sudden you realize that once I was blind, but now I see, what would be your response? Enthusiasm? Excitement? Let, let's heighten, heighten the setting. What if it was your child? That all of a sudden your child was blind, but your child sees. Wouldn't you be just elated? Wouldn't you be enthused and excited? They were. 
They were. But what, what I find that is, to me, insightful is the words that Jesus used in this portion, specific words once again. He said to them at the beginning, go your way. Go, go do what you want to do. You can go on your path. You can go back to your lifestyle. You can go and take care of your needs. Oh, and by the way, do these men have needs? They've been doing what for whatever length of time? What's been their job? They've been begging. Don't they have physical needs? Don't they have family that they may want to connect with? And so when he says, go your way, your faith has made you whole, and yet the text says they've been given permission to go and do whatever they want, to go to, their, to choose their own path. And immediately they receive their sight, and what do they choose to do? We read at the end of verse 52, what, what do the men choose to do? They followed Jesus in the way. So their way that they choose to go isn't the way that they would have that that they want to get a job. They're going to follow Jesus. They're just going. To, they are no now so caught up with Christ that he's headed to Jerusalem. And by the way, he's headed to Jerusalem to do what? To die. His disciples are hesitant. Okay, and I think I'm taking you back to this implication that Bartimaeus and the disciples somehow they connect that Mark uses his name and identifies him. Somehow there's, there's a connection here. So I, I'm going to get the impression that there was conversation. Surely Bartimaeus and the other fellows, surely they must get a sense of what's happening in Jerusalem. Jesus is going down that way and learning from the disciples. And yet they are so determined out of gratitude for what Jesus has done that instead of going their way, they go his way. Well, again, it strikes me. That Jesus, even though he deserved their gratitude, he didn't force it. Isn't that true of what the Lord does for us? He deals with us. He graciously forgives us. He guides us. He directs us. And yet, did he force you here this evening? Did he bring you by a collar and make you sit in the pew? Now, maybe another family member did. But did Jesus do that to any of you? The answer is, no, you had a choice. Does he... Does he you know, does some, some spiritual hand all of a sudden appear on your wall come Sunday morning, push you out of the bed and into the shower and stand there shaking like this that you better go to church or else. And none of us, that doesn't happen to any of us. He allows us choice, but out of gospel gratitude, we should be following him. We should, here's where tradition takes it. Again, this is tradition. Tradition says that Bartimaeus got so involved in the local church that during the trials of Jesus Christ, when Jesus was hauled, that Bartimaeus submitted himself to be one of those who would give testimony before Pilate on behalf of Jesus, and later on he was persecuted because of his faith in Christ. That's tradition. I don't know how, how uh, that could be proven other than it's in some ancient writings, but it's not in Scripture. We don't know how valid that is other than the fact that Mark mentions this man by name. He does have some type of a story that others can recognize. And this man, he followed Christ. So, so I look at the story and go, okay, what does this teach me about Christ? It teaches me Jesus was very busy but cared enough for those, to stop for those in need. In other words, he practiced what he preached.
So should you and I. Jesus knew everything, but he wanted them to share their needs. It teaches that he responds to the prayers of the believers. Therefore, we should pray. Jesus deserved their loyalty, but he wanted them to decide what to do. Thus, we learn Jesus allows the saved even today to dedicate themselves. But it is common sense and common gratitude we should be dedicated to Christ in all that we say, in all that we do. There's a lot in this story if we just get the eyes to see and take the time to glean it. There's some challenging stuff and some exciting stuff about Jesus Christ. We're going to be talking more about Jesus on Sunday and where he's portrayed again in the book of Job. And I hope that last week, this week, just thinking and focusing on Jesus and the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ gets you more enthused to serve him, to worship him, and to pray to him. Let's take these next minutes and let's pray. Let's pray to the Lord about the needs that were given as well as those other needs you want to share with one another. Thank